I tend to think that some event or decision is not important unless it significantly changes your spending habits. Take, for example, this report from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. They observed the largest swings in consumer spending during the pandemic. The categories included food away from home, alcoholic beverages, and apparel and services. It's probably not a big surprise to most that initially people ordered out less with an initial 53.7 drop relative to pre-COVID numbers. But then this figure later rebounded, increased 91.2% as businesses adjusted and the restrictions were lifted. Now, when it comes to the use of money, there's something that's even more impactful than a pandemic. In talking about becoming Christians, it was once said that, quote, there are three conversions necessary. The conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the purse, unquote. In other words, we change our citizenship from earth to heaven. As we do that, our values, our appetites, and spending change as well. As we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, priorities, budgets, and investments will shift. I think today's passage in Malachi 3, 7 through 12, is a great reminder of what a change in our relationship with money might look like as we think about our relationship with God. So let's read it together, Malachi 3, 7 through 12. If you're following along in your pew Bible, you'll find it in page 675, the last page of the pew Bible on the Old Testament side. 675. Yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, in what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings, you are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you in the, the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Before I discuss the structure of this passage, I want to address a key issue here. Let's be clear that God's plan for our material blessings is not the same for Israel in the Old Testament as it is for the church in the New Testament. I'll repeat, God's plan for our material blessings is not the same for Israel in the Old Testament as it is for the church in the New Testament. 
Back then, the Lord used one chosen people group as an object lesson. He demonstrates to the world that obedience to the law leads to prosperity, while disobedience to it leads to poverty. The neighboring nations would look at Israel as they follow God and say, Wow, look over there. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. But in the present age, God does not intend that the entire body of Christ be bound to one location on the map, more more like a diaspora or diaspora and, or an international syndicate. And while obedience, love, fruitful living, holiness, gospel proclamation mark us out as distinct from the world, national material prosperity does not prove our belongingness to God. Of course, it's not a sin to be rich. Christians as individuals can enjoy benefits of biblical wisdom, including wealth. But corporately speaking, church, the church cannot claim the promises of physical blessings outlined here in Malachi. They're intended for Israel past and Israel future. So with that out of the way, let's look at the structure of Malachi 3, 7 to 12. We can divide this passage into halves and then into thirds. First, note the contrast between verse 9 and verse 12. You see whole nation in verse 9. All nations in 12. The whole nation that is cursed becomes a delightful land called blessed by all nations. So that gives us two parts, verses 7 to 9 and verses 10 to 12. But within verses 7 to 9, I observe two clusters of verbs. In verse 7, there's return three times. You see the Lord's command to return, his promise that he'll return to them if they do, and Israel asking how they should return. And then in verses 8 to 9, you see the verb for rob. The rhetorical question, will a man rob God, is followed by the accusation, God's people are robbing him. Yet again, Israel questions this charge, asking how they robbed him. So that gives us a division into three parts. Verse 7. Verses 8 to 9, verses 10 to 12. Correspondingly, I believe we have here three ways to reach spiritual prosperity. One, return to the Lord by repenting sincerely. Return to the Lord by repenting sincerely. That's verse 7. Two, admit that we rob God by withholding what's rightfully, what's his rightfully. Admit that we rob God by withholding what's his rightfully. That's verses 8 to 9. Trying to finish with the L-Y here, but three, trust that God desires to bless us abundantly. That's verses 10 to 12. Trust that God desires to bless us abundantly. 10 to 12. 
First, we turn to the Lord by repenting sincerely. Throughout the scriptures, we find that how we handle our material possessions is key in our spiritual life. Covetousness is idolatry. You cannot serve God and mammon. Pharisees loved money and derided Jesus. Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Contentment requires you to trust that God will never leave you nor forsake you. We see the same link between material problems and spiritual problems in today's passage. It'll help to read verse 6 from last time and then reread a portion of verse 7. And let me do that now. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. So verse 7 is a direct contrast from verse 6. Unlike the unchanging God, the Israelites do change and they go astray. Yet the Lord of hosts, he does not give up on them. God's not only the God of justice, he's also the Lord who chose and loves Israel to the end. It's also true that they must return to the Lord by repenting sincerely. That requires recognition that the human heart is desperately wicked. Even God's chosen people, the Israelites, display their wayward hearts from the earliest days. Moses, their lawgiver, knew this well. While he was receiving God's commands upon a mountain, there they were at the foot of that same mountain, practicing idolatry, worshiping the golden calf. They were stubborn, rebellious, provoking God to anger. What Stephen said in Acts parallels what Malachi says here. They always resisted the Holy Spirit. As their fathers did, so did they. And like them, we too must return to the Lord by repenting sincerely. This is not only the first point of the sermon, it's also the first step for us as sinners. But now, what does it mean to return precisely? And that's what Israelites wanted to know. For them, it meant going back to the matter of worship and giving. And that leads to the second way to prosper spiritually. Admit that we rob God by withholding what's his rightfully. Commentator Craig Blazing compares this fifth oracle of Malachi with the second one. Quote, again, the nation's problem had to do with offerings. The second oracle, which was, we covered chapter 1, verse 6 to 2 to 9, 2, 9, dealt with the attitude of disrespect which led to the profaning of the offerings. There, the quality of the sacrifices was in question. Here, the quantity was the issue. So when Israel brought the blind, the lame, the sick, and the stolen, those were unworthy gifts for the most worthy God. Bad quality. Now, to him who is greater than all the other gods, they offer quantitatively 
quantitatively less than what he had required. Whether they bring some, something left over or they keep something back, they were dishonoring God. Just to be clear, it's not as if God needs our you know, offerings or the temple to sustain himself. He doesn't need our livestock because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Heaven is his throne and the earth his footstool. His hands made all these things. So why does he want us to give? God demands offering from us for our good and his glory. But God's people robbed him when they did not give all of their tithes and offerings. And so let's discuss these two terms. Tithe literally means 10%. The law of Moses clearly states that all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. That's Leviticus 27. This collection will be used to sustain the Levites and finance their work. It also allowed for national celebrations and worship at Jerusalem. In addition to the Levites, there were others who'd benefit, the foreigners, the orphans, the widows who are among them as the most needy ones of the land. So that's tied. Now, how is that different from the word offering, the second word there? The second word, offering, might be related to the verb for lift up or take up. So in some contexts, you'll see this word translated as heave offering based on his etymology. Most relevant and helpful is Numbers 18, 25 to 28. It talks about how the priests get their livelihood from the tithes of others, but then they themselves must tithe from that portion. Those tithes of offerings are the offerings, I'm sorry, the, I'm sorry, the tithes of the priests are the offerings we see here in Malachi 3.8. The tithes and offerings here correspond to Israelites in general and the priests of Levi, respectively. By naming both types of giving, God's pointing out that both the layman and the clergy are guilty of robbing God. Then we see in verse 9 how awful and prevalent was this problem. The entire nation was cursed for their disobedience. Remember from Galatians, and which cites Deuteronomy, how the law itself declares that cursed is the one who does not confirm all its words by observing them. And those curses were dreadful. They were everywhere. The basket, the kneading bowl, produce of the land, increase of the cattle, the offspring of the flocks, they were all affected. By keeping back their material wealth, they were harming themselves. To save themselves and their nation, Israel must admit that they robbed God by withholding what's his rightfully. So that's the state of affairs in Israel in Malachi's days. Some questions may be asked about how this applies to us in our days. Do we rob God when we do not give the tent of our income or other offerings? 
If we're not under the law of Moses, but under grace, what need is there for giving? Where's the command in the New Testament to give the tithe? We must concede that, yes, there's no specific command to tithe in the New Testament. Now, in a moment, I'll explain why tithing is still a good principle for giving. But first, I must speak to the heart. Regardless of the testament or dispensation, whatever percentage we give, there is this universal underlying principle. All this discussion about giving depends on whether we first give ourselves to God. Remember the first point we covered. We must first return to the Lord by repenting sincerely. And sincerely means he wants all of our hearts, all of our souls, There is indeed tithing of your income, but there's no such thing as tithing of your life. Our greatest robbery is not giving ourselves fully to God. But as even even as regenerate Christians, there's this ongoing rebellion and stubbornness in our flesh. There's that temptation of Ananias and Sapphira in all of us. Our sin nature wants to keep back something from God. But we still want to look pious as if we're giving our all. Maybe some of us want to sound the trumpet. We want the glory from men more than the reward of the Father who sees in the secret. And then there's the Corinthians that Carrie read about. He read from 2 Corinthians 8 earlier in the service. Like them, we may begin with the desire to give, but then apathy sets in, and we fail to follow through. There's the readiness and the willingness, but not the completeness. To avoid these poor examples, ask the Lord to weigh your heart. Acknowledge, first of all, that everything belongs to God. Then, like the Macedonians, give yourselves to the Lord and then to others by the will of God. Give as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So before you open up your wallets and purses, open up your heart before God, test your attitude, examine your motivation. I think just like the Lord's Supper, it's very important that you treat financial giving as a part of sacred worship. God struck dead churchgoers in Jerusalem and Corinth for taking these lightly. To help you to give to God with reverence, we provide pre-marked envelopes for offerings to take home. They're not only for convenience sake, for our convenience and your convenience, they're provided so you can prayerfully and purposefully prepare in advance. Now, as you get ready to give, there's still that question of how much. Pastor, do I give 10%, less or more? Give me some guidance. Now, my response is, again, tithing is something we should continue today, and I'll present three reasons why. First, as we read the scriptures, we quickly learn that life under the law is not the only context for tithing. The first ones we see giving the tenth were like us. 
not under the law of Moses. In Genesis, before Moses was born, there's Abraham with Melchizedek. And then there's Jacob in Bethel. Surely there's tithing before the law demanded it, and there can be tithing beyond the demands of the law. Secondly, and this is somewhat obvious, but even if we don't belong to Israel, we belong to the church, and the church has its own ministry needs, and tithing would help to meet those needs. The apostolic ministry continued then with the saints' material support. The pastoral ministry continues today with the saints' material support. Like Israel, the church must help the poor, the widows, and the orphans in their midst. They are to show hospitality to strangers and those who travel for ministry. There's more. The Great Commission has stretched the scope of our giving way beyond the borders of Israel. We are now connected to disciples of all nations. We are now restricted to the tribes of Jacob. We're united to all redeemed to God by the blood of Jesus out of every tribe. So that's why early believers looked beyond the needs of their own congregations to help brothers and sisters at other places. We're trying to do something similar as uh, this month. And we're gathering Thanksgiving offerings, like I said in the announcements, to help Florida churches affected by Hurricane Ian. All these activities and programs require money and depend on the regular contributions of believers, including but not limited to the 10%. And that leads to the third reason for tithing. Tithing is a good baseline for giving in the New Testament. But do keep in mind that exemplary individuals didn't see 10% as a ceiling. They most likely treated it as a minimum, a starting point, a threshold. Yet Barnabas selling land and donating the proceeds. Again, the churches of Macedonia freely gave beyond their ability, even in trying circumstances. So those are just three reasons for to tie today, and there's certainly more. But more than anything, I just want to encourage you to reflect on your giving, reflect on your finances. Your spending and saving patterns may reveal something deep in your heart. If you have questions, speak to Bernardo, our deacon of finance, or one of our elders, Stephen Bailey. Seek their counsel and wisdom. Go to God. Look at his word. Reflect and see if you are somehow withholding what's rightfully God's. While thinking about these matters, you may realize that you're holding back from God because you have a wrong impression of him. You may falsely view him as a stingy deity out for his own interests. Maybe you think he's miserly or Scrooge-like. Maybe you minimize giving because you minimize God. This is why we must learn to trust that God desires to bless us abundantly. That's the third step to spiritual prosperity. 
Verse 10 is the counter to verse 9. The way to repent from the robbery of God is to bring all the tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse, this is the place in Jerusalem temple where the first fruits of the people's dough, offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, new wine and oil would be stored. They're reserved for the sake of the Levites and the priests, and that's simple enough to understand. But it's harder to believe God saying to us, try me. I'm okay with God examining me, testing my mind, and trying my heart. But here's an invitation to test the Lord from the Lord himself. Wasn't he grieved by those stubborn and wayward men who tested him in the wilderness? Weren't there enough people in Malachi's days tempting God and getting away with it? But here he is saying to Israel, Go ahead, bring all the tithe and see what happens. Dare to believe that God desires to bless abundantly. As if they needed more encouragement to do this, look at that phrase, says the Lord of hosts three times in three verses. It's the self-existent Yahweh commanding the celestial armies, challenging them to taste and see that he is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Trust that God desires to bless abundantly. And yes, we are talking abundantly. That phrase, windows of heaven, was used back in Genesis as God sent the universal flood to judge the world. But picture now not a cataclysmic deluge, but a land covered with material blessings. If they'd only obey, the Lord has promised in Deuteronomy 28.12 to open to them his good treasure, the heavens to give the rain to their land in its season and to bless all the work of their hand. And while God blesses from the top down, he will also bless from the ground up. The devourer in verse 11 is most likely the locust that destroys crops and ruins agricultural lives. God once used the plague of locusts to humble Egypt. It has become a way to humble Israel and discipline them. But now if they would return, return to him and bring in all their tithes, God will rebuke threats to their land, their harvests. Crops and vines will not fail to bear fruit. The glorious end result is in verse 12. We see what happens to Israel when they trust that God desires to bless them abundantly. The Lord promises, promises them that all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. That word delightful was used back in chapter 1, verse 10. There the Lord of hosts said to the priest who despised his name, I have no pleasure in you. But now with obedience, the land will be pleasing to God. Israel will not be a byword among the peoples. Jerusalem will be a wonder of the world, the envy of the nations, the joy of the whole earth. They will lend to many but not borrow. They will be the head, not the tail. They'll stand above, not below. But for all this to happen, they must first trust that God desires to bless abundantly.
Now, it's obvious Israel and really all of us fail to enjoy the blessings of God. As long as those blessings are tied to our performance, there's a problem. I was trying to think of some illustrations. It's not that the water's lacking in the source or the reservoir's empty. It's that our faucet is stuck. It's the, it's, we're responsible for the dam that keeps the flow at bay. The problem's with us. We fail to see and trust that God desires to bless us abundantly. Jeremiah sums it up well. We as sinners have committed two evils. We have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and hewn ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Spiritually speaking, we're more like a shrub in the desert than a tree planted by the waters. So what hope is there for our spiritual prosperity? Thankfully, God the Father gives from heaven every good gift and every perfect gift. And his best gift is his son, Jesus Christ. God, rich in mercy, gave us the son of his love. And though Christ was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He lived a perfect life, living out that principle. It is more blessed to give than to receive. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ultimately, the price of blood, precious for the obtaining of eternal redemption, was sold for merely 30 pieces of silver. Jesus died giving all of himself. His one sacrifice was worth more than all the tithes and offerings ever collected. His death on the cross paid for our sins and the penalty of hell. He rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to heaven. Someday, he'll return to judge all mankind. Are you ready for that judgment, that final judgment? Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. Don't be foolish thinking you'll live forever, as this night your soul may be required of you. Turn from yourselves and your sins, greed and avarice. Turn to Jesus and place your faith in him and his works. Give up your quest for uncertain riches and claim the unsearchable riches of Christ. They're yours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As believers, while we're in this fallen world and before the kingdom arrives, our spiritual wealth and material wealth will not be aligned. But still, the followers of Jesus can live with contentment and without worry. We might be impoverished in the eyes of the world, but we sang earlier, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let's celebrate the truth of the gospel as we sing our final song. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost.
We still need the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage in your word. Often we may have um, come before just to think about our financial giving. But Lord, there's more than that here. You're challenging us to return to you. You're challenging us to give all of ourselves to you. We know that our offerings and our giving, just really all that we do, reflects our relationship with you. We pray that as we see who you are, unchanging God, a God who desires to bless, with the heart of a father, help us to respond as grateful, obedient, loving children. We know that that cannot be done in our own strength, and we're thankful for your son, who for our sakes became poor. We thank you for his sacrifice and that you are rich in mercy and the unsearchable riches of your Son is ours through faith, through grace. We thank you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.